You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Ordinarily, football is a game of control. Two teams battle to control turf, the ground. But sometimes the game is not won by control, but victory emerges out of chaos. For example, some of you are old enough and interested enough to remember the game back in 1982, Berkeley, California, which ended with what uh, has been fondly referred to as the play. 1982, Stanford uh, was playing Cal. And this is a game in which neither team won the game, really. I think the winner of the game was the band, the Stanford band. If you remember the story, uh, Stanford was uh, behind by two points at the end of the game, late in the fourth quarter, and uh, they were on their own 13-yard line, fourth down, 17 to go. John Elway was the quarterback uh, for the Cardinals, Stanford at that time, and they battled their way up the field until there were only eight seconds left on the clock, and they put a field goal over the uh, uprights. At this point, the game seemed to be entirely uh, over, uh, and the announcer, local announcer there, Berkeley, Joe Starkey of KGO AM 810, who was calling the game, said, only a miracle can save the Bears now. Well, you know what happened, if you know the story. They got the miracle. Um, Unfortunately, John Elway had called a timeout just before that kick went up, which meant that there were four seconds left on the clock, which meant that Stanford would have to run one more play, and that's where the chaos got really interesting. It was a kickoff. They kicked the ball. It was a squib, a little squib kick, and um, one of Cal's players picked up the, the ball and almost immediately got surrounded by Stanford players. But without explanation, the ball sort of popped behind him and it looked like a lateral pass. One of his players happened to be there. And this happened five times, Stanford just surrounding, and then the ball would pop out. And uh, in the midst of that chaos, there was a, a, a pileup on the field. It appeared that the play and the game had ended At least that's the way the Stanford band saw it. They were lined up in the end zone ready to celebrate a victory. And as soon as they saw that pile up, they went racing out onto the field. Unfortunately for them, the ball had popped out one last time. And another Cal player had the ball and he was streaking at them way up the field through the band into the end zone. Into the trombone player, by the way, who was standing in the end zone and flattened him fairly famously. And in fact, what happened then was the game was over. Cal, 25. Stanford, 20. Berkeley had won. But as far as I'm concerned, it was really the band that won that game. And a friend of mine was on that band, Gary Robinson. Uh, He was the assistant band manager. He was on the field at that moment, and he was recently interviewed. A year ago, Sports Illustrated did an interview with some of these guys uh, 30 years after the play. And Gary Robinson said, he said, I got to tell you that that was the quietest Stanford band bus ride I have ever experienced riding home from that game. And if you know the Stanford band, you could imagine it was very unusual that they would ever be quiet. He got back to his dorm room and his voicemail was jammed with calls from Taiwan to Switzerland, calling, saying, what in the world were you thinking? And you know, they felt awful about it. But I love it. I love that story. Uh, for two reasons. 
One is, first of all, the band won. How many other uh, musicians can say that they won the football game, right, without being a member of the football team? The other reason I love it is that, to me, it seems to symbolize the triumph of beauty in the midst of chaos. And that's important to me because the truth is sometimes it seems like life is a game of control. Uh, the, the velocity of life, the way it is these days, we have no margin. We're uh, maxed out. And it seems like in many respects, we're just four seconds away from disaster. There's very little that separates us from absolute disaster. We're just one argument away, one sick childcare worker away, one pink slip away, one more tuition check away from disaster. And what I do, and I think what many of us do, in the face of that kind of chaos, is we start grasping for control. And this plays out in our own life, and it plays out in the lives of people around us. We grasp for control of our roommates, our girlfriends, our boyfriends, our parents, our children, try to manage something. But the fact is, fact is we just can't control life. We can't even control our own lives. But the good news is, we don't have to. The good news of Jesus Christ this morning is that God loves you. God has forgiven you. God is on the field of your life. And there is a beauty in what the Holy Spirit is doing in the midst of the chaos. My question this morning is, what does that look like? What does that really look like? You know, life on the ground with Jesus. The best place to get an answer for that question is in the Bible. And of all the places in the Bible, I think uh, we see it most clearly in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. Um, so will you open your Bible to that? If you didn't bring a Bible, no problem. We've got a black book on the rack in front of you. Uh, turn that book over to page 948, and there you will see Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. If you're able, would you stand and let's read that text aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. 
heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. I think what the Apostle Paul is saying here, initially at least, is that the chaos isn't just out there, it's in here. It's in me. It's very deep, it's very spiritual, and it's in each one of us. Now, here at this point, I love the biblical realism. To me, it authenticates the Bible that it's so honest and accurate about the human dynamic. It would be so easy for the Apostle Paul to try to sell uh, Christianity in the way that people sell almost everything today. We might expect him to say, hi, my name is Paul. I'm slick, fine, and wonderful. And if you knew Jesus the way I did, you'd be slick, fine, and wonderful too. But that's not what he says. He's very honest. In Romans 7, he says, um, I do the very thing that I wish I wouldn't do. And the, the thing that I want to do is the one thing that I can't do. I, I, I do evil when I want to do good, and I do good. I, I can't do good and instead do evil. And, and, and it's in that spirit that he says here, look, within you, there are two entities, two agents that are at loggerheads with one another. They're in conflict with one another. We see in verse 17, did you catch that? They're opposed to each other. And I get the mental image of NFL linebackers. It's like he's saying, you know, on one side you got a line of 200 to 300 pound linebackers. And then you got another side that are just as fearsome and powerful as they are lining up against. And these two rows of of players are like the two desires that I find within every person. By the way, some people will say, oh, he must be talking about non-Christians. This is before the great apostle became a believer. No. Paul, as he writes to the Galatians, is clearly writing to Christians. They, They have the spirit inside of him. And yet they have these conflicting desires. I want this. I want to do the good thing. But I also really want this. I want to do the bad thing. And there's conflict. Do you see that? I want you to be encouraged right off the bat. Because if you feel the way I feel and the way Apostle Paul feels, then you can know there's nothing particularly unusual about you. This is a normative experience for the follower of Jesus Christ to feel these conflicting desires, even to act out of conflicting desires He calls one uh, the flesh. He calls the other the spirit. These are the sources of these desires. Now, we have to be very careful here at this point because uh, the flesh does not mean, in this context, just the physical body. And Paul is not particularly isolating what we call sins of the flesh. If you look at the list, you'll see there are a lot of very immaterial sins there in that list. Now, when he talks about the flesh in this context, what the Apostle Paul is referring to is our fallen human nature. Our autonomy, the urge to, to do it independent of God. That's what he means by the flesh. I, I say, this is, this is my inner rebel, the flesh. And then when he refers to the spirit, he's not referring to the spiritual dimension of human beings, the soul, uh, as it were. He's referring to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the one to whom refer, he refers in Galatians 4, verse 6, as the spirit of God's Son, Jesus. 
And he just says, let's start here. Let's be really honest about who we are. Our inner rebel and God's spirit are both inside of us and they're oppositional. They're conflicting with each other. And this push and pull on the field of life is what shapes our experience, our lives, moment by moment. Life on the ground. And so we ask, well, how do we respond if this is the case? And at this point, Paul's very language both demonstrates a contrast and invites us to make our choice. Because he refers, on the one hand, to the works of the flesh, the erga, um, like ergonome, the labor, the toil uh, of the flesh. And on the other hand, he refers to the fruit of the spirit. And so in my mind, I'm picturing a, a, a farmer at the end of the day, just exhausted with the day's labor, leaning against his spade, covered in sweat and mud, looking jealously at the plant, who is productive, but not in the way that he is through labor and toil, who is productive in a very natural, very organic way, simply abiding in the resources of light and soil and water and so bringing forth fruit. So already just the words that the Apostle Paul, as he lists these two experiences, tends to invite us towards one and, and not towards the other. But there are two responses to this conflict in our lives. And on the first one, I want to say that we won't fix the problem with more control. Control is not going to be the solution. Just the very language that Paul uses begins to suggest that. If you want to know what happens if we try to just exert more effort, if we try to shoulder the line forward, Paul says, it's obvious. Verse 19, he says, the works of the flesh are obvious. And he lists a bunch of stuff. 15 things we won't explore in detail. I'll just say that many commentators have noticed they seem to be grouped into four categories, which I call beds, beliefs, buddies, and bottles. Uh, and each of these is an outcome of trying to exert our own autonomous, independent of God control over some chaos in our lives. We have trouble with our beds, for example, when we try to control the chaos of loneliness. And we see the first three things in this list have to do with that. The next uh, two, idolatry and sorcery, have to do with our beliefs. We have trouble with our beliefs when we try to control the chaos of fear in our lives. And the next eight actually have to do with our relationships or our buddies. And Paul says, you will have trouble with your buddies if you try to control the chaos of your own worthiness or unworthiness in your life. The final two in the list have to do with what I call bottles, drunkenness and carousing. And if you try to control the chaos of your hurt in life, you will end up self-medicating in a way that you will not find helpful. And so all of these things, they're obvious, Paul says. Why are they attractive? Why do we find ourselves falling into this strategy of exerting our own efforts and labor in the face of our chaos? And the answer is fairly simple, I think, Paul would say, control. These things don't actually deliver what they promise, but what they do offer you is a sense that you're still doing something. You're trying. Don't just sit there, but do something, right? We all want to do something, and so we don't know what to do with our chaos, but we'll try to manage it. Control. 
Now, this was a problem in Galatia. You recall that uh, Paul, the apostle, had founded the churches in Galatia. Very simply, he had just preached the good news of Jesus. But he had been followed by some false teachers from Jerusalem who had come on Paul's coattail and said, you know, Jesus is fine, and that's a great way to begin with life, but what you need really is Jesus plus. After all, look at the disaster your lives are, 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 are in. And they didn't need any convincing. They had chaos in their lives. They knew that was the case. They were very susceptible to this pitch. And they said, well, if you want to control the chaos, then what you need is a much longer list of things that you can do. You need rules. You need laws. You need controls. And the Apostle Paul says, be very, very careful with that. This was a, a, a appealing to the church in Galatia. I want to suggest to you it's very appealing to the church in 21st century America. I can't tell you how many large churches are getting larger, not because they preach the simple good news of Jesus, but because they offer people, quote, practical advice. They offer people guidance to get your life back together. It particularly, it seems appealing to young adults for some reason these days who flock to these, perhaps, I don't know, out of the sense of being raised with a lot of moral ambiguity. The clarity is appealing. But I want to tell you, in none of it do we find gospel. In all of it, we find good advice, but not good news. We're a church, I hope and pray, that people come to when they're out of good advice, when they're out of control, when they know that they can't do anything with the chaos of their lives and they know that they need a savior, Jesus Christ, and are ready to fall on his grace. And that's the good news. So we won't fix the chaos with more control. Paul invites us to the other side of the equation, to the other response that is, to the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You see, because God's Spirit is really on the field in your life. And that is the good news. I want you to hear, I'll try to reflect for you a little bit of the tone of voice as it shifted in the radio announcer as this game moved from one of futility to one of an astonishing victory. This is, again, Joe Starkey of KGO AM 810 when he's doing the usual announcer thing, getting ready to roll the credits, the game is unwinding, and he expresses with kind of a casual tone the futility of the Bears when he says they're still in deep trouble at midfield, the ball is still loose, and then all of a sudden, elation. He says, oh, the band is out on the field. He's going to get into the end zone. The band is out on the field. He's gone into the end zone. And then there's a kind of a chaos in the sound booth. And he says, there are flags all over the place. We've heard no decision yet. Everybody's milling around on the field. And the Bears, the Bears have won. The Bears have won. Oh, my gosh. I added a little bit. The most amazing, sensational, dramatic, heart-rending, exciting, thrilling finish in the history of college football. California has won the big game over Stanford. Oh, excuse me for my voice, but I have never, never seen anything like it in history. And it goes on. I know like Ken's sitting in the back. He's like a Bears fan. I've had this tape inflicted on me by Berkeley people forever. I've got it almost memorized. But that shift in the tone of his voice is the same shift, I believe, that the Apostle Paul were here, we could hear in his voice. Because remember Romans 7. Um, he's already told us, I'm, I'm foremost among all sinners. That's who I am. He could say that publicly. 
And then Romans 7, he said, he was a wretched man that I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? And then the voice changes. And he says, thanks be to God, Jesus Christ, for the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Victory. God's spirit's on the field. The play in your life has broken down in the same way. You can't hold the line anymore. But the band is on the field. The Holy Spirit is the music of Jesus pouring onto the field of your life, bringing his beauty in the midst of our chaos. And the language is rather emphatic. If you were to read verse 16 in the Greek, you would be impressed with Paul's conviction. I like the New American Standard Bible translation of uh, and NIV and the KJV at this point because they, they don't make it sound like two imperatives. It really isn't. It's, a, it's, it's an imperative and a, or an invitation and a celebration. The New American Standard Bible says, but I say, but I say, I know what the teachers from Jerusalem said. I know what some of the voices inside of you say, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Will not is a double emphatic negative. You walk by the Spirit, you will not. I know how this will end for you. You will not. By the way, in our translation, it says you will not satisfy the desires. That, that satisfy is really a verbal form of the word telos, like end, the goal. He says you're not going to end up at the wrong end zone. The Holy Spirit, if you will walk with him, will carry you over the distance and you will land firmly in the victory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, on the last day. Oh, it'll look messy, but I know where you're going. I know where it'll end. This spirit is the same one who hovered, who brooded over the watery chaos and brought God's creative life into existence in Genesis 1, chapter uh, 1, verse 2. This spirit is the same spirit who is present to our Savior as he lay wounded, dead in the grave and brought Jesus back from the life, uh, life from the dead. This is the same spirit who hovers over the chaos of my life and yours. This is the same spirit who brings back everything dead in us and brings it to life, brings forth his fruit, his love, his joy, his peace. In the statement, verse 16, I think there is, therefore, uh, an ultimate declaration of victory and a game plan for chaos. The game plan for chaos is in that first word, which is the imperative, the command, or the invitation. In our translation, it's live. See that in verse 16? Live by the Spirit. Again, I like other translations better that capture more literally the word that Paul uses, which is walk. Because in the Hebrew mind, a life is a series of little steps that aggregate. So live by the Spirit. Uh, it means to walk by the Spirit. Take another step by the Spirit. This agrees with uh, what Paul says in verse 25, where he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. And that phrase, guided by the Spirit, in the NIV is translated, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. See that theme? See, that word, keep in step with the Spirit, was a word that could be used in the military of a military formation uh, to, to stay in line with soldiers who are marching or to stay in line with a military formation as they line up for battle. 
And so at this point, what the Apostle Paul is saying, I want you to line up with the Holy Spirit. Get in formation with him. I don't know any 200, 300-pound linebacker that's got the throwaway to the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ against whatever it is that's challenging you. Paul says, will you line up with the Spirit? And as the whistle blows and the ball is snapped, will you take the step with the Spirit? Because I know ultimately the Spirit is victorious, and you will be too. Step with the Spirit. He's not talking about control. He's talking about taking steps with God when you have no control. When your life is out of control. I love what David Saul says about coping with with failure. He writes, Christianity is not about good people getting better. It's about real people coping with the failure to be good. When, when, When those unwelcome, godless And scary desires come into your heart. Paul is essentially saying, crucify them. Step with the Spirit another step closer to the cross. Where you will see yourself crucified in your Savior. And where you will see yourself in the presence of a God who has for you infinite love. And infinite capacity to lead you home. I'll never forget a a step that I took when I was hiking. It was late. We were lost. It was dark. We were on a granite um, slab. And I was in the front, and I stepped onto a ledge. And it was with five guys. There was only room for four of us on the ledge. And when the last guy stepped on with all of our backpacks, we were in trouble. And from the back of the line, they started to shout, step forward, step forward. And I had no idea what forward was. I couldn't see anything. I could feel leaves, a leaf of some kind of a bush at my shins. And so I took a step. And only to discover that those leaves were not the leaves of a bush, but the leaves of the top of a tree. And down I went. I fell off a cliff about 30 feet high. And I survived. I was not seriously hurt. Uh, But I want to tell you, I think... Stepping in the spirit sometimes feels more like that than anything else. We're told sometimes about the victorious spiritual, spirit-filled life, and I suppose it is. But I also want to affirm that sometimes when we take that step in the spirit, it's a, a terrifying thing. We, we step into utter darkness, and it's absolutely unsettling. It feels like you feel when you come back from a really long, hard day at work when you absolutely have nothing left to give and yet there's your spouse, your children and you take that step by faith to offer them love with Jesus' love. Or there's a person in your life that's just made life miserable for you for years and you'd rather just avoid that person but you take a step in faith with the kindness of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And you pick up the phone and you call. Or you find yourself maybe in the dead of night with hurt and despair, tempted to self-medicate again, but you take the step in faith that the Holy Spirit will give you the self-control of Jesus. And you'll pick up the phone and call a friend and ask for help. It's an act of faith. It's stepping into something we can't see. Sometimes we can't see the paving stones ahead. We can't even see our own foot. But step with the Spirit. 
In late 18th century Great Britain, there was a young man named Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon one day went 12 miles from home to visit with a pastor of a neighboring town, and he enjoyed their hospitality. And when he left, the family debriefed the conversation. And the pastor uh, who had hosted Charles Simeon heard his daughter say, we didn't really like the man. He, He seemed harsh and arrogant to them. And it is perhaps that there was just too much an air of control in Charles Simeon's life at that point. But very wisely, their father and the pastor said to their daughters, would you go out into the garden and bring back a peach for me? And they went out and they looked at the tree and then they came back. For we read the time of peaches was not yet. And they told this to their father, they're all green, they're not ripe. And the father very wisely said, well, my dears, it is green now and we must wait. But a little more sun and a few more showers and the peach will be ripe and sweet. So it is with Mr. Simeon. Do you hear the wisdom of that? Do you hear the grace in that? And he was right. Mr. Simeon would live with more chaos than most do. He faced rejection, weakness, illness, depression, and yet he became one of Britain's greatest leading lights, a strong evangelical pastor. And at the end of his life, in 1836, as he lay on his deathbed, these were his last words, and I love this line. He contemplates the journey he has been on, and he says this, infinite wisdom has arranged the whole with infinite love, and infinite power enables me to rest upon that love. Infinite wisdom has arranged the whole with infinite love and infinite power enables me to rest upon that love. What's he saying? He's saying he got the miracle. And so will you. And so will I. Close with this. Last month, the Huskies played Stanford. They went down there. There was another miracle. It wasn't on the field. The band stayed where they belonged. It was in the stands. Albert Sankey the grandfather of Bishop Sankey, one of the Husky players, uh, had just had eye surgery on his right eye, cornea transplant, and he was no longer blind for the first time in years, which meant that he could see his son playing football as a young adult for the first time. He was thrilled. The media was there. They went up into the stands with cameras and a microphone. They put a mic in his face, and they said, tell us what you said to Bishop before the game. And wise old Grandpa Sankey said, it's not what happened before the game, but it's what's going to happen after the game. He said, I want to hug him and be with him and to let him see my face as I see his face. The pleasure, the love. I want to say, brothers and sisters, one day very soon, our Savior Jesus Christ will return or he will take us home. And he will allow us to see the face of our heavenly father as he looks with infinite love into ours. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can trust you to bring us home. We can trust you not to bring control or order to our lives, but to bring beauty. The beauty of our savior, Jesus Christ. And so today in all of our 
chaos, we want to bow before you and maybe even kneel before you and just say, God, we surrender. Lead us to that cross. Let us resign ourselves to your infinite love and unfailing grace. And now empower us. Not to know the whole journey, but just to take the next step, whatever that is. Bring it to mind for each one of us and give us the strength to take it. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.